you want to turn to Judges chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives, or among all our people, that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and walked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Thank you, Becca. This is the word of the Lord. You can play that video for me. I sound good, I smell good, and I look good. Just when you think you've had enough to see, I draw you back in. Think you can break free from me? Don't be so sure. I am We are currently in a series talking about sin, the seven deadly sins, to be, to be in point of fact. Many times when we talk about sin, when I've been talking about sin with you, I've talked about what is sin. Many people have different definitions of sin. But more than what, how about why? Why did Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? Mark Twain thought he had the answer to this. This is what Mark Twain said. Adam was but human. This explains it all. He did not want the apple for the apple's sake. He wanted it only because it was forbidden. The mistake was, not, was in not forbidding the serpent. Then he would have eaten the serpent. Ooh, I thought that was funny. It's not true, but it's funny. <laughs> I have been uh, calling the series The Seven Deadly Sins and using the structure of the seven. But truly what I'm preaching on is the acts of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit that we find in Galatians chapter 5. The acts of the flesh, our fleshly nature, our sinful nature, those those are, the, those, are the, those are the thoughts and intentions of that old person that we still have attached to us. We have a new life in Christ, but we still have this proclivity towards sin, this bent towards sin. But we also have a new nature, a spirit nature. And if we sow to please the spirit, out of the spirit we reap eternal life. What does it look like for someone to be spiritual? A lot of people say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, which is kind of nuts. But anyway, people will say that. I know Katy Perry recently said that in an interview. She's not religious, but she's spiritual. So his question, what, is, what does it mean to some, for someone to be spiritual? Does it mean that they go, um, a lot, they burn incense, they do ceremonies? No, no, absolutely not. You know what it also doesn't even look like? Even though this is good, because we, this is Pentecost Sunday, so we celebrate speaking in tongues, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Those are the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but it is not evidence of somebody walking with the Spirit. 
In fact, in the life of Samson, we're going to talk about somebody who had the power of the Holy Spirit in dramatic fashion, but he did not walk with the Spirit. If you walk with the Spirit, it will show. It'll be, it'll come out like fruit on a tree. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. These may even seem like works. Like, well, I've got to try to be more patient. I have to try to be more loving. No, you need to try to be closer to Jesus Christ. To love Jesus more. And out of that relationship, you exude love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Once again, against such things, there is no law. So the purpose of this whole series is not really to complain about different sins in our culture or in our life, but really to promote the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Because if you sow to please the sinful nature, you will not bear fruit. Throughout this series, I've been talking about, I've been talking about the cause of each sin. What the sin is a caricature of, the corruption of a good, godly virtue. And finally, the cure. Because there is a cure to sin. That's a little controversial. It's a little controversial to say, to say what the Apostle Paul said. As such, some of you were, but you were washed. You're not an angry person. See, we identify, especially in our modern day culture, we identify with our sins. You say, well, it's not so much I struggle with anger. I'm, um, oh, I'm, I'm just, we'll say, oh, I'm just an angry person. If you can't handle me at my worst, then you don't deserve me at my best. Supposedly, Marilyn Rose said that, and she died alone. Maybe just don't be terrible to the people you love in your life. <laughs> I'm just an overachiever. That's why I work constant 90-hour weeks and rarely see my family, not for a season, but all, all the time. That certainly isn't greed or anything. Yes, I'm mad at Jim. Jim gets everything handed to him because he has a rich dad, and i got to scrape for the little bit I have. But it's not like I deal with envy or anything like that. We start seeing ourselves as this, as our identity. But there's a cure to each and every one of these things, to wrath, greed, envy, gluttony. We are past the midway mark. We are on the last three sins. And today, I want to talk to you about lust. And it's going to get real quiet because it's awkward to talk about lust in church. It's awkward to talk about sex. It's been so pretty. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like one or two things in church when you talk about sex and lust. Either one, you don't talk about it at all, so you have to ignore a whole lot of scripture. Or two, it's done in such a cringy, sideshow way that shows such great dishonor to something beautiful that God has created. I saw one pastor one time, they were doing a series on sex. So him and his wife preached from their like wedding bed. They put it on like the on the podium. It's like that is that is so cringy. You're making it. You're making it a sideshow, something that's so so wondrous in God's view. Why lust is so bad is because because the virtue of it is so holy, so righteous. Saint Augustine, one of the church one of the church found um, church fathers, was a renowned in rhetoric in Carthage, Rome, and later in Milan. During his somewhat freewheeling time in his life, in his early 20s and 30s, he had a mistress, as well as a child out of wedlock. This was before his conversion experience. 
When later remembering these days, he wrote in his book, Confessions, this is what his quote was, As a youth I prayed, give me chastity and give me continuance, but don't give it yet. What's worse, Pew Research uh, Group, this uh, about two weeks ago, did a survey on sex and the American Christian. And this is their conclusion. Half of U.S. Christians say casual sex between consenting adults is sometimes or always acceptable. To this, the Gospel Coalition summarized it as, at, with this headline. A new survey finds that a majority of Christians don't care what God thinks about sex. So my response to their response is this. A new survey reveals that half of U.S. Christians are indeed not Christian. Because you cannot take one area of your life in which God, sovereign over all, who says, mine, and say no, and slap his hand away. What is lust? Easton Bible Dictionary, and I like to go to the Bible Dictionaries rather than like um, Webster's Dictionary, because in Webster's Dictionary is low, and uh, YOLO, and literally means figuratively now, so I don't trust it. Easton's Bible Dictionary says, Lust is sinful longing, the inward sin which leads to the falling away from God. Lust, the origin, the origin of this sin, has its place in the heart. Not of necessity, but because it is the center of all moral forces and impulses of the spiritual activity. In Mark 4.19 says, Lusts are objects of desire. I'd like to focus on this. I know other people have said this too. But what lust is, it's making a person who's made in the image of God an object. No more care for them than you would any other object that you just really, really want. Is noticing someone as attractive, is that lust? Is having sexual desire for your spouse lust? I would say a simple equation to see how attraction becomes lust is this. Attraction plus time multiplied by desire equals lust. Attraction plus time multiplied by desire equals lust. You can't help but be attracted to that which is attractive. Some of that is cultural, and some of that, um, some of that is how you've been made. What is the proper response when, when, when attracted to someone who is not your husband or wife? And those of you who are not married, that is everyone. It is to move on and not to dwell on it. The same response you have to any number of beautiful and interesting things in your day. The trouble starts when the initial attraction, you then dwell on it and give it time. You dwell on you dwell on your feeling and how that attraction has become a, now that attraction has become a temptation and it is now multiplied by desire, even though it was a godly desire has now been perverted into something unholy. We flee temptation. Isn't that interesting? We are told to wrestle with the devil, but to flee sexual immorality. There's a reason for this. If we don't, then desire gets multiplied to it, and now, now we want that person as we would want any other object. We don't flee temp um, if we don't flee temptation, there is another equation in the, in the Bible that I would like to make you aware of. James 1, 14-16. But each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully born, 
brings, brings forth death. No wonder the Bible tells us to flee this sin. Don't entertain it. Don't think on it. Don't think that you are so strong or immune to it. There are so many godly men and women who thought, I'm beyond temptation in this area. And we read about them on the news all the time, don't we? I don't often name names, but it, you know, it, was, it was so much in the news. But the former pastor of Hillsong, New York, Carl Lentz, I guarantee you 20 years ago when he started ministry, he never thought in a million years he wouldn't have just one but two affairs on his wife. I bet he thought he was stronger than that, better than that. This is not just a men's issue either. Women struggle with porn addiction. It's one of the great secrets that, that doesn't get talked about much. More and more women, more and more girls are getting entrapped with porn. And we kind of overlook it because we look at it as a men's issue, but it's not just a men's issue. Maybe it might be different for, for women and for girls. Maybe it might start on an emotional level before it gets to a physical level, and it might not. But to know that not, not, not a single sin is completely devoid of a, just a certain gen, gender. I remember when I was a teenager, I was listening to Dawson McAllister Live, and I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember Dawson McAllister Live. I'd call in and everything. And I remember there was this one girl who had called in, and she grew up in church. And um, so she, she grew up in church, and she said she was the one in the youth group always talking about being sexually pure, being sexually pure. Wait till marriage. Wait till marriage. And as, um, when she became a young adult, she started dating this guy, had to move in with her, and now she's like, I, I don't know where I'm at. And one of the first things Dawson told her was, well, you need to break up, and you need to stop living together. She, she hated this suggestion. She's like, I don't see, and she had a southern accent, so I'm sorry if I put that in there. But anyway, she's like, I don't see why, why, I gotta, why I gotta, we can't live together. I'm taking him to church on Sunday. He's like, so you're literally rolling over in bed and saying, let's go to church? This might be a little bit of a mixed message. Um... <laughs> it's not just a men's issue. Lust also takes different forms. One thing I thought was just crazy this last decade was how many women brazenly reading Fifty Shades of Grey in every location that there is. I read the Wikipedia on that and threw up a little bit in my mouth. Um, and yet, it's just out there. And we're going on a flight and somebody reading this, and I'm like, how crazy would it be for a guy to have a have a raunchy pornographic magazine in his hand reading it while you're going through the aisle. But we were accepting of this, right? There's many different ways, different forms of, of lust. The Bible and lust, when preparing today's sermon, occurred to me that I'm spoiled with verses, examples, individuals who are destroyed by lust. Judah, the son of Jacob, whose tribe the Messiah would come from, Sleeps with a prostitute that happened to be his daughter-in-law. David of the tribe of Judah, the man after God's own heart. King. Sees a woman bathing on, his, on her balcony. He doesn't tell her to go back in. It's not the right time for that. He doesn't go in himself. There's a million choices he had that night, but he chooses the one very wrong one and has her brought to him. How about Solomon? David's son, the wisest of all kings. Never was there a king before him who was as wise. Never will there be a king after him as wise. And where does he fall? He falls in regards to lust. He marries 
He marries outside what God's covenant dictated him to do. At first it became lust of the flesh, but then it became lust after her own, after the idols of his many wives. And God splits the kingdom of Israel in two. And truly it will never be reunited until the trumpets sound, the bowls are emptied, and the seals are broken. That's how destructive lust can be. Solomon knew better than anyone else. He knew God's law. He had wisdom in this area. But there's a difference between knowing you shouldn't and being obedient. It doesn't matter how much you know if you don't do anything about it. See, I could know CPR and you could be joking if I don't do anything. Who cares about what classes I took, right? You can know what's right and still not do it, so it doesn't matter because well done is always better than well said. Speaking of Solomon, he wrote many of the Proverbs. Proverbs are these wise sayings. And in Proverbs chapter 7 through 9, Solomon describes wisdom and folly. I think I've got a slide after the initial scripture. I have to go to some other scripture. All right. Wisdom and folly. And he gives them a personification of women. First in chapter 7 of Proverbs, he talks about the adulterous woman. In chapter 8, he talks about lady wisdom. And what wisdom does, and in chapter 7, the adulterous woman, she basically stalks her prey to destroy them. Lady Wisdom has the invitation. And then in chapter 9, Solomon, kind of, Solomon takes away any of the kind of metaphor and, and calls, calls the adulterous woman uh, folly. I was initially going to, going to label them as Lady Wisdom, as many people do, and Lady Lust. Then I saw another pastor who had actually, I thought, a very uh, a lot better name, which was Dame Wisdom and Madam Folly. They are both personifications of a concept. While wisdom is seen in the broad sense, folly is seen in chapter 7, a warning against lust. Someday I am looking forward to preaching through the Proverbs, but today I'm not going to quite dwell on them, really going to set the stage for as we talk about Samson, the view of Lady, Lady Wisdom and um, Dame Wisdom and Madame Folly. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1 through 6, speaks of Dame Wisdom. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beast, and she has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has set out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, and eat of my bread, and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live, and walk in the way of insight. Now let's look at Madame Folly in verses 13 through 18. 13. The woman Folly is loud, she is seductive, and she knows nothing. Verse 13 talks really about the wisdom of this world, doesn't it? The wisdom of sin. There's so much our young people, you know, you're afraid you're going to miss out. If you don't sow your wild oats, so to speak. I remember speaking with, um, with uh, teenagers about this. You're not going to miss out. That if you die before you're married or whatever, you're not going to miss out because there's joys that are unspeakable in heaven that this wor world cannot even whisper about. But this world, it is loud, it is seductive, and it knows nothing. If you live according to the world, your sufferings will multiply. Verse 14. 
She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Who is, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Jesus talks about lust. In his very first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, many people say the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. Jesus talks about the thoughts and intentions of our heart are as, as important as our actions. At that point in time, you had a group of people called the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious elite. And outwardly, they looked perfect. If you tried to bring up a charge against them, it wouldn't stick. Because outwardly, they seemed perfect. So Jesus gets on the scene in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to, ju for, to judgment. They thought very much like we think today in America, well, I haven't killed anybody, why would Jesus send me to hell? I haven't killed anybody, I'm not a bad person. Jesus says, if you hated your brother in your heart, you're guilty. But he goes much further than that. You've heard, it, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, yep, we're going there. Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one member than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it out. And throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of, the mem one of your members than the whole body go into hell. I want you to remember Madame Folly and Jesus' words here as I preach to you about the best case study about the destruction, destructive power of lust. Samson, the Nazarite. Samson, he was dedicated from birth. He was a blessing. He was blessed and he was a blessing. His mother couldn't conceive, so she prays and prays and prays. She conceives. He was a blessing to her. So he, he, her and her, her husband dedicate him as a Nazarite. And he couldn't cut his hair. He couldn't drink anything fermented. And he couldn't touch a dead body. He is then blessed with superhuman strength, supernatural strength. But he is also a great example of how you can be strong in one area but that does not mean you are strong in every area. It does not mean that you, you may be able to rip the you can be able to rip a massive gate out of a city, but he couldn't find the strength to honor God with his sexuality. This ended up taking his life. And in Samson's story, we'll see the causes of lust. We will see what lust is truly caricature or corruption of. Unfortunately, we won't find the cure for lust. We'll find that other places. The cause of lust. Generally speaking, there's two, cause for, two causes of lust. One is inward and one is out. Inwardly, we are totally depraved. Because of the sin of our first father, we have this bent towards sin. And one of those sins is sexual immorality. It is lust. The desire to make other human beings into objects. Paul called this our fleshly nature. This is not only a biological response, this is when we dwell on that response and we place our desire on it. Remember, attraction plus time multiplied by desire. Two, 
The second reason for lust is the world outside of us wants to own our lust. You have heard the term before, sex sells, right? Except I don't think advertisers are ever interested in healthy sexual expression between a husband and wife. No, it's always about lust, and they want to own your lust, because if they can own your lust, they might be able to own your pocketbook. The expression should be changed to lust or sexual immorality sells. In his book, The Screwtape Letter, C.S. Lewis states how, I'm not going to go over the whole plot, but there's a senior demon in there, and he's talking about how over the decades, over the centuries, they have tried to control men and women's desires towards a certain aesthetic, to a certain kind of woman. And it kind of goes throughout all of them. And the last one he talks about, even in this book, is to make women into boys. I'll let you think about how disgusting and sick that is and how true that is. Samson, in Samson's story here, we only see one cause. There's, there's no blaming on his parents. There's no blaming on his society. It's all Samson. It's his inner struggle that he gives way to. In fact, you really can't call it a struggle because he desperately seeks these things. Samson, here's one cause for lust in Samson's case. Selfishness. Selfishness. Samson was desperately selfish. When telling his parents about the girl he saw, they objected. Why? Because even though Israel had sinned, even though they were conquered by the Philistines, at least Samson's parents remembered the law of God not to intermarry. There was a good reason for this. Because if they would intermarry, they'd start serving those other gods. They were in the land of Canaan for a reason. Other than the promised land, they were also in there to drive out these people because their sin was so heinous towards God and finally the stench of it had reached the throne of God and he was using the Israelites to drive them out. And he told them, if you walk in their ways, I will do the same to you. And he does. They walk in the ways of Canaan and he drives them out. They were God's chosen people. They were not a people of preferential treatment. They were not to intermarry with the Canaanites, read in that, the Philistines. There's a reason the Jews were there in the first place. The sins of these people had risen to God. They are warned that if they walk in the ways of these people, they, will too, they too will be driven out. Samson doesn't care, quote, for she is right in my eyes. If one Beck was reading that, or you're reading that, and you're imagining kind of a tense situation, I think you're right on the money. They're objecting, they're bringing the word of God to bear. And like many of us, right, when the word of God's to bear on us, and it's something we're doing wrong, we get angry, right? That's the first response. He's very angry about it, for she is right in my eyes. He doesn't know her. Let me point that out. This is love at first sight. This is one of the most stupid things ever talked about is love at first sight. There's no such thing as love at first sight. Um, there's lust at first sight, yes. Even if you don't have an overwhelming sexual desire for that person, it's still lust. How can I know that without knowing your personal monologue? When you see that person, you're like, well, I don't have this overwhelming sexual desire. You don't know them. So you have now constructed a person in your mind that they're not. They're just an object, right? Even though this object might be like playing house with you in your mind or whatever, they're still an object because you don't love them for them. You love them for what you imagine them to be. It's a fantasy concocted to serve you. So it was with Samson. By the way, take note how it mentions Samson's eyes, not once but twice 
in chapter 14. We want to take, we, I want you to take special note of his eyes and his hands throughout this time. Faithlessness. Here's another cause of lust in Samson's life. Faithlessness. It's our problem too. We are all, all of us, sexually broken. Ungrateful people and lust exposes this. Samson's parents tell him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives whom all, um, or among all our people that you might go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Samson doesn't believe that God truly is Yahweh Jireh, that God will provide. And that's the thing with lust. Those of us who are married, when we stray in lust, what we are telling God is, the woman or man you gave me is not enough. You despise them in favor of somebody. It's ungratefulness. It's ungratefulness. And those of you who are not married, when you fail in lust, it's very much like Samson. You don't believe that God will provide you a husband and wife. God has given you the gift of singleness. It's a whole different story. But when we step out in lust, it is faithlessness because we do not believe that God will provide for us or we are ungrateful for what God has provided for us. It is ultimately lacking the fruit of the Spirit. Chapter 14 tells us what we need to know about Samson. He lacks the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit rushes on him, but he does not walk by the Spirit. What a great example of how not to be as those of us who are temples of the Holy Spirit. He lacks love, agape love. He lacks peace. He lacks patience. Because he wants her right now, right? He lacks self-control. He lacks self-control. I remember talking with some young men. I was uh, at a treatment facility at the time. I was one of the counselors. We were talking about what makes a man. How do you know when you're really a man? And all these boys, once again, they came here because it was here or it was going to a juvenile hall and we had horses, so they came here. <laughs> so they're the kids that can't be in public school. So we're talking about this and their, their first response is it's when you have sex, then you feel like a man. I was like, that's weird because our, our chaplain was a guy, a celibate guy, and I said, is he a man? They're like, yeah, yeah, he's a man. They respected him. And I'm like, but he hasn't had sex, so how can he be a man? I'm like, well, he is a man, so they're, they're confused because there's something that their culture has been telling them all their life, and now I'm messing with it. I said, you are a man when you take responsibility for your own actions. You're a man when you take responsibility for your own actions. You know, that's really not gender, that's just adulthood. You're a godly man when you also exercise self-control. God has not made you to be a dog. He has made you to be a man or a woman, woman after his own heart as part of exuding the fruit of the Spirit. In chapter 16, lust drives Samson not to another wife, but into a prostitute. What is the caricature of lust? You probably already know. It's sexual love in a covenant relationship, what we call marriage. In chapter 16, verse 4, we have this verse that says, Samson loved a woman in the valley of Sorek named Delilah. When I read this, I really want to explain this verse away. To make it seem, well, he's just lusting after Delilah too. It's not real. Then I looked at the word love here, and that's a hab. And it's the word that's used for when God tells Abraham, take the son whom you have, whom you love, 
and sacrifice him on that hill. It is the word that is used with Isaac and Rebekah. When he married her, he hugged her and it comforted him after his mother's death. I'm about to make you feel very bad for Samson. Underneath Samson's lust, his bravado was a longing for the real thing. He wanted to be loved. But he didn't get he didn't get that. Because he had settled for second best. He had settled for less lust before. Delilah did not love him back, and that's the tragedy of it. She took money to seduce him and destroy him. Lust is the shadow of one of the things that God has made us for, sexual love and marriage, which is glorious. There's much to say, according to studies, statistic after statistic, on, on sex in marriage, and really there's not much there's there's really not a lot of validity to do because even if it's at the exact opposite, it doesn't matter. God's word matters. But here's what I think is interesting. So our society, we are saturated with lust, with, lust, with sex. But according to one survey, 50% of those who are surveyed who regularly, who regularly indulged in pornography said that they had a reduction in sexual desire. Sin is a liar. While every year study after study comes out that says sex in marriage is more fulfilling and satisfying this is the worst-kept secret. Yet, what we see on TV and movies is that sex outside of marriage is fun and is exciting. And sex after marriage is boring. No wonder, because Madame Folly says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. I don't know who said this first, so I'm going to credit Emerson Agerich with it, because that was the last person I heard it from. The devil does everything he can do to get people to have sex before marriage, and everything, and everything he does everything he can do to stop people from having sex after marriage. One pastor I like to listen to is Pastor Bodie Bachman, and he was talking about this and talking about how we talk about um, sex in church or sex with 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 uh, with kids who are growing up, and of course we want to say no, not until you're married. Maybe we focus too much on that and it becomes transgressive and they're like exciting as opposed to the truth which is sex in marriage is glorious and there's nothing that compares to it Andrew Clayton the playwright said that it used to be a rule of thumb in Hollywood that you don't write about two things you don't write about prayer and you don't write and you don't you don't uh, you don't show on TV and movies that's what I meant to say TV and movies prayer or sex and the reason for these two things is that the majority of what is happening, you cannot see. Of course, obviously, TVs and movies, I don't care about that anymore. Because there's something, there's something amazing that happens in a covenant relationship in sex. We often read 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And we only use the application for that for like physical health. So don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with girls 50. Um, that's not primarily what it's about. It's primarily about sexual immorality. The union between a husband and wife is symbolic of the union Christ has with his church. In Jesus' time, when a man proposed to a woman, he would then go to his father's house, he would then build an addition, and when the addition was approved by his father, he'd come back for his wife and the wedding would be. Jesus Christ tells his, tells his disciples, 
that in his father's house there are many rooms. He goes there to prepare a place and that he will come back for us. The joy and ecstasy of sex in the marriage covenant is representative of the connection Christ has with his bride. Don't take that too far or it gets weird. Um, it is represent, representative of that. And it would be as it would be as inappropriate for God to join himself with the people that are not of his that are not his people as it would be for you to join with somebody who's not your covenant partner in marriage. When we tell our young people don't have sex before marriage, we should tell them why. It is for the maximizing of your happiness and joy. It is not to take something from you or for you to miss out. It's so that you may experience the zenith of what God has made you for. And truly, one thing that Bodie Bachman says that I always like is that we do not think enough of sex. Not that we don't think of sex enough. We don't think enough of sex. It is everything what I just told you about. It is representative of Christ with the church. So when we tell our young people, save yourself to marriage, it is so that it might be glorious and wonderful so that you may not have all these issues going into a relationship. And those of you who failed in this, you can testify to this, but you can also testify to God's, now, God's grace now keeping you pure, whether in your marriage or in your singleness. I don't want anybody to come, back, come away here. Well, I've already messed up in this pastor Jason, so there's no hope for me. Stow that talk. It's defeatist talk. That's the kind of talk that makes pastors never want to talk about this subject because people feel so crushed in spirit. Don't feel crushed in spirit. God has now brought you to where he's brought you today so you might honor God with your body, and that's an incredible testimony because there's so many people in your same boat who need to know of a God who can keep you faithful even after you've messed up. We exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Samson had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That's what lust does. In Romans chapter 1, Paul describes one of the harshest punishments God would apply to a nation or to a people, and it's this, do what you want. He gives them over to a depraved nature, their own nature. He just lets them do what they want. You know how Rome fell? No big nation came and gobbled them up. They rotted from the inside. Samson doesn't care what God had to say about his sexuality. And to his great sorrow, he never gets what God had in store for him. So let's talk about the cure. How does Samson's story end? You may know this. After Delilah finds out really what the secret to his strength is, it's his hair. She cuts his hair. The spirit had left him and he didn't know it. It's a good metaphor for the American church, I feel. When the Spirit of God has left us, the salt has lost its saltiness. We're just, we're just like everything else. We're just another country club of well-meaning people. And the Spirit of God left us, we don't even know. Men, the men come into the room, they bind him, and they gouge out his eyes, and they force him to work. He is then at their, at their meeting place where all the officials and all the leaders of the Philistine communities are there and they are wanting him to entertain them so now he's become a joke in their eyes. He asked for God to bless him one last time so he had vengeance for his eyes and he dies when he, when he rips those pillars out of their foundation. And he does more with his death than he did with his life. I've got good news for you. The, 
That is not the only way to cure lust, is to die. <clears throat> Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. This is not so that you won't have a good time. It's so, it's so that these things do not kill you body, soul, and spirit. These things don't kill the happiness that God means for you to have on earth and the joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. To follow in those ways, into those unwise ways, are the ways of modern folly instead of wisdom. Earlier I, I asked you to take special note of Samson's eyes and his hands. One benefit of the narrative stories in the Bible is that we might be able to see the teachings later on and earlier in action. This becomes kind of a stumbling point for some people because you hear about some heinous things that people we think are the good guys doing. This is what we need to realize. There's only one good guy in all of Scripture. That's Jesus Christ. It's God. Amen. Jesus says it himself. Why do you call me good? Only God alone is good. Right. Everybody else is a sinner who's desperately in need of a Savior. So we'll read about things that are happening. You might read in the Samson story and you're like, he did kind of a lot of bad things. Yeah, he certainly did. We get to see the teachings of Jesus now apply to the story of Samson. Jesus said that if, that if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eyes cause you to sin, gouge them out. Now, before I go any further, nobody take out your pocket knife. Jesus talked about how serious to take sin. And some people really think that that's something you should do. No, no, don't do that. He's talking about how serious it is. And we get to see an example of this in Samson's life. Samson doesn't. And what happens to him? The eyes that he lived his life by, we are told twice in chapter 14, she was right in his eyes. They have now been gouged out. Samson rips a lion apart with his bare hands. He kills his enemies with his hands. He takes his lovers with his hands. First woman, the prostitute, he treats them like objects. Watching, you know, a movie last night, The Three Amigos. And F.A. is like, you want the food, you take the food. You want the woman, you take the woman. That's disgusting, right? That's what Samson did. All of his life, did what he wanted with his own hands. He lost the spirit of God, and now his hands are used to push a millstone and to entertain his enemies. He didn't realize he was not sitting at the table of wisdom. He was sitting at Madame Folly's. Earlier in my sermon, I preached on Dame Wisdom and Madame Folly. Madame Folly says, verse 17, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. I warn you, Christian men and women, not to spiritualize lust in your life, because I've seen too many good men and women fall because of this. They will say, well, I'm going to a missionary date. I'm going to go out to that person, and I'm, I'm a good effect in their life. I heard one individual, a friend of mine, and I told him plainly, that's not why you're doing this. You like her. You've had dreams of marrying her. Right now, her life is chaos, and you are not going to take away from that chaos. That chaos will be added to you. And his fall was great. Do not spiritualize lust in your life. That you're doing something noble when you really just want that person to serve you. Delilah is Madame Folly. 
and Samson didn't know it until he was bound after his hair was cut. Earlier in my sermon, I preached on Dame Wisdom and Madame Folly. I preached to you about what, what Madame Folly says. Delilah is Madame Folly. So is every sin that so easily entangles. It is pleasant to the eyes and good for food, but it tastes like death. So many people and things will get you to try to believe that to give in, this will make you happy. That it is pleasant, it is sweet, but it results in death. So what is the cure? Finally getting to the cure. Live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Galatians 5 gives us, gives us the answer. Live by the Spirit. Pray when you are tempted. When God provides a way out, take it. That is one promise we have in Scripture. That when we are tempted, God provides a way out under it so that we will not be tempted beyond what we can bear. Go to a different gym. Have a talk with that coworker about the inappropriateness of your conversation. Exercise self-control. Here are some concrete ways of killing lust in your life. One, coping strategies. Be wise. Be aware of who you are and what you are doing. Most of the time when people fall in regards to lust, it is because they're overtired, they're bored, or they are depressed. That's your vulnerability point, and that's the time to get the shield up. That's the time to get the guard up. So many men I know who've had an affair say it was at the time where they were lowest in their life. It's time to get the guard up. Remember that you have the Holy Spirit of God in you that gives you power to resist and flee. For a lot of people, it's when you are tired and feeling down. Be on guard in those times. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has seized you except that which is common. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. We like to say we had no choice when we've already made our choice and we want to feel better about it. Here's the second one. Remember your worth. Remember that verse that said we are the, we are our bodies of the temple of the Holy Spirit? It says that we've been bought with a price. For us to join ourselves with somebody else to engage in lust, ad- adultery of our hearts, that's as inappropriate as if Christ would join himself with the devil. Remember your worth and remember the other person's worth. They are individuals made in the image of God whom God truly loves and they are worth more than lust. That man or woman that you might be lusting after, treating like an object in your mind, they are God's son and daughter, hopefully, potentially. They're certainly made in the image of God. Think about how you would feel if you knew somebody was lusting after one of your children. Three, this one is for only married people in the room, so I don't know, uh, unmarried people, close your ears, I'm just kidding. The Bible gives us one thing to combat lust in our life, those of us who are married, and it is to have more sex. Every husband in the room is like, Pastor Jason, this is the best sermon I've ever preached. <laughs> have more sex. First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In the Song of Songs, it says, do not waken love before it's time. Sex was designed to be consistent and often. 
It's crazy to think that you can tell young people, yeah, you, you just casually have sex once or twice, but you know, you make sure you, you're, you're, you're careful with your partners and you're using protection. That's not what it was made for. It was made to be indulged in, to build love between a couple. How messed up is our culture? As married people, sex is important. It does com combat lust. And if you find that to be distasteful, there's something deeper wrong than sex in your life, in your sex with your partner. If you find your partner to be disgusting, okay, there's a bigger relational problem you have to deal with. Unmarried people, young people, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Flee youthful lusts. Don't think that you're so strong that you can just endure it. Flee. Focus on what is above. Focus on what God has made you for. Conclusion today, and worship team, you can come up at this point. Talk about the, the whole reason for this whole study is so that we can put to death these sins that so easily entangle. So we talk about the cause. The inward, the outward. What is the character of? Character of the blessed union between a man between a husband and wife. And what is the cure to flee? These coping strategies, remember your worth. Married people, to have a healthy sex life. Unmarried people, flee youthful lust. Focus, our focus your energy on things, things that, uh, that, that bring righteousness, that lead to your self-worth in Christ. So my challenge for you today is put to death lust. The worship team is going to be leading us in our final song. This is always a time for us and throughout this series to have an introspection in our life, to see where we're at with this. How have I been failing? What areas of my weekend? God, make me strong in this. I think of that, I don't know if you even call it a hymn because it was written a little bit later than hymns, but there's that song that, um, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering Throughout this whole series, that should be our prayer. Bind my heart to you, Lord. We have sorrow over sin, but if all we have is sorrow, it's not good enough. There has to be change in our life. We are a living sacrifice. That is our acceptable act of worship. So we continually deal with these things, so we continually bring it to the Lord to put it to death. Will you please stand with us as we sing our last song?
impressed. I was impressed by the Lord to tell those of you, maybe you feel, maybe you've fallen in this area in the past. And I think the enemy is trying to bring that back up to you, even though you've repented, you've confessed. To remind you there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Such as some of you were, but you've been washed. If you've confessed, he has cleansed you from all unrighteousness, and you stand before him clean. Do not let the devil put a wedge of doubt in your mind. This this sermon should have encouraged you, and if you feel yourself condemned, that is not of the Lord. If you are currently falling in this area, it is of the Lord that you feel bad. It is of the Lord that you feel convicted and urged to repent and fall upon the mercies of Jesus Christ. If you're doing well in this area, you should be encouraged to help others. God, I pray over this congregation right now, those who are watching at home, kind of a threefold purpose other than truly for our joy, that we may have joy that is full of glory, that is abundant. Threefold purpose is for those of us who think that we can mess around in this and still be have approval from you, we're in for a root awakening. For you will not be mocked, a man reaps what he sows. For those who may be fallen in this area, that they would rejoice with great joy of a God who saves, of a God who transforms, of a God who does such a work in your life, who can bring a charge against you any longer. And third, for those of us who God has led through this path to encourage others, to pray for others, to raise up a generation that honors God with their body. 